We have a rather tight schedule today. This is the first full scheduled uh, meeting in this wonderful city. And I'd like to introduce now our first speaker so that she has plenty of time to talk to you and to share her experience, strength, and hope. LeClaire. Thanks, Roger. Does this work okay? It's all right at this end. Okay. All right. I'm Leclerc. I'm an alcoholic. I'm also an alcoholic from New York, where it's our custom usually to talk for 20 minutes rather than a whole hour. So I'm not too familiar with my own one-hour talk. But... I guess with that much time, there's less excuse for hiding things than there are, you know, and skipping over this and that than uh, we have with the shorter ones. I noticed my title today, you know, has to do with change, and I'll touch upon three different careers sort of along the way, because uh, they're all part of the story. See, I never really had the experience of being a drunk doctor. I've been an alcoholic doctor, but uh, I wasn't a physician at the time that the uh, drinking began or, or at the time that it ended. Like Anne, who talked last night, I wasn't aware of any alcoholism in the family or anything that particularly set me up to be an alcoholic. Um, you know, as far as early childhood was concerned, I wasn't deprived, I wasn't beaten, and I didn't even have to go to an English school and wear knee socks. <laughs> I found out after I'd been sober about three years that, in fact, I had three alcoholic grandparents, which explained rather a lot to me about the, the caution that my parents always showed around alcohol and some of the care with which they introduced me to drinking at home so that I'd learn the appropriate way to do it and not get in trouble with the boys and one thing and another. So I was introduced to alcohol quite early, you know, a sip of this and a sip of that, pretty much under supervision. And the parents made every attempt to, um, you know, not to glamorize it or to be too uh, excited about it one way or the other. And I don't recall being particularly excited about it. Um, I had to teach myself to drink beer in high school because I didn't like the taste of it. And that was what everyone was doing. I don't remember it as a major event. I did not get struck drunk as of my first introduction to, uh, you know, a bottle of it. In fact, it just somehow wasn't very important. In my late teens, I did a little bit of defiance drinking. Uh, just about all of us did. It was a small town in Tennessee, college town called Sewanee. And when the college students were away, what you did in the summer, if you were a teenager, was to break into the fraternity houses by prying one of the um, ground-level windows loose and sneak into the fraternity house, play pool and ping pong on their, their game tables, and uh, also play spin the bottle and, you know, sardines and things like that. And while you were at it, have a few beers and drink and feel that you were living very dangerously and, you know, be delighted that the parents couldn't find it out and all this stuff. No big deal. Uh, started college, women's college in the South, where they had an honor system, and you didn't drink. Now, I'm sure if it was a police system, knowing me, I probably would have had bottles hidden all over the place. But since they trusted us and didn't smell our breath, um, 
I honored that, and as far as I know, the rest of the student body did too. So drinking for me didn't really begin until my father, who was an army officer, got an appointment as military attaché to London right at the end of uh, the Second World War. And over we went, me and my mother, in the early spring of uh, 46. I was about 17 and really rather shy. I felt like I was all arms and legs and feet and elbows, and I didn't really have much to say, and I didn't know to hand, how, how to, to handle myself in uh, diplomatic corps society. I found out very quickly that life was going to be one round of cocktail parties after another, one receiving line after another, and that after you bounced off the end of that receiving line, you were kind of on your own, and you had to figure out a way of breaking into those little conversation groups that were sort of all over the place. And I couldn't quite do it until I discovered that with a cigarette in one hand and a martini in the other, it didn't take very long for the ugly duckling to feel like a swan. Uh, like a lot of alcoholics, I found out that I had a pretty good tolerance for alcohol, or built one very quickly. I didn't get sick. I didn't get drunk. I didn't have hangovers. I didn't vomit on the rug. Uh, I was much more at ease, and people praised me very much for what I was like when I was drinking. Uh, if I was slow getting to a party, I would be urged to, uh, you know, drink up quickly and catch up with the group. And people kept saying, you're so much more fun when you've had a couple of drinks. I think what this really amounted to was that I liked people very much. Um, I wanted to be friendly. I wanted to appreciate you. But I didn't know how to do it without a drink or two. After I'd had one or two, I thought you were marvelous and I could say so. And I was not a belligerent drunk, at least not then and not for years. I was a very friendly one. So as far as I was concerned, for a long time, drinking was all profit and absolutely no price tag. Uh, if I could drink now the way I drank then in those first three or four years after I first got to Europe, believe me, I would be drinking now. I am not one of those AA members who crowed with delight and said, you know, isn't it absolutely marvelous I'm an alcoholic, I can never have another drink safely so long as I live. This, to me, was not the jollies. If I could go back to the kind of drinking that I did have and enjoy for the first few years, yes, I would drink. I don't have to tell you, though, that the drinking did not stay that way. Uh, I'm here. But anyhow, first few years were fine. Now, looking back, I can't say that the, even those first few years were totally normal. Some things were happening. Drinking was very important to me. Too important. So that when I found that there were a bunch of people, you know, and I was living in Switzerland for a while too after the England thing, I had a chance to meet a lot of very bright, very competent, very creative people. And they were willing to put up with me and have me over to their homes and everything else. There was only one problem. Most of those very creative people only had one or two drinks. Then there were other people who were much less interesting, you know, who did much less. Uh, I could take a little less pride in, but they were my kind of people. 
Uh, they understood that you had to have a few cocktails before dinner and then a bunch of wine with the dinner and a lot, you know, and a big pousse cafe and then several highballs and all the rest. So I simply wrote off the squares and had no idea at all that alcohol was choosing my friends for me. It also was choosing the places where I could go. If there was a, a restaurant that simply had superb food but didn't have a bar, I couldn't go to it. If there was a sports activity of some sort where drinking wasn't part of it, uh, I couldn't go to that. I mean, can you imagine a reasonable alcoholic going over to somebody's house to play chamber music? I mean, how could you drink and, and you know, play a fiddle? Fiddles have to go, you know. It's that sort of thing. But if you had, had tried to point this out to me at the time, I probably would have given you a hard time. And like so many of us, at the time I stopped my drinking, I could still say to a lot of people, I don't drink any more than my friends, and have it be entirely true. The thing I was totally unaware of was that I had picked my friends for exactly that reason and thrown away all of the people, you know, who's not drinking, uh, made me feel self-conscious and uh, uncomfortable about mine. But at the time, I wouldn't have seen it. I would have told you that everything was just peachy and this was all just um, retrospectoscope, you know, to learn it. Anyhow, back from Europe. And I decided that the place for me now was going to be yet finish up a college degree at the University of Colorado at Boulder. So there I went. And it was a pretty good drinking scene. We had 3.2 beer in town, liquor stores right at the town limits, you know, on every road going away from the place, and mixed drinks about 30 miles away in every direction. Sort of fun, by the way, uh, as the faculty would wring their hands over all of the highway deaths among the students. We had 11 o'clock curfews for the women. A place... The nearest place where you could buy a mixed drink and dance was 30 miles away. So, of course, we would all drink up, you know, as much as we could, look at our watches, realize we had to, you know, rush back to uh, get into the dormitory in time. And then people would wonder how come we kept uh, wrecking the cars in Colorado winters, you know, and uh, would talk about how irresponsible young people were. But, okay, I drank... I was going to do pre-med. I rather rapidly met a man who, uh, believe it or not, was from West Vancouver, British Columbia. And we decided we'd get married. Now, he was a, a professor planning to leave Boulder in about two years, and I had three years of college work to do. Perfect solution. I could give up the pre-med, which was difficult and involved studying science and uh, really having to work at night, and do something else so as to finish three years of college in two years and marry Peter on schedule. And the only way I could possibly do that would be not to learn anything new and to major in something that I already knew so I wouldn't have to study. Well, by that time, I already knew how to speak French and Spanish, so I became a French major, Spanish minor, and since Peter was a philosophy professor, the other minor was philosophy, and we took it from there. Okay. By 1950, I had a college degree all right. Um, 
you know, with the French major and no pre-med. But Peter decided he didn't want to marry me. And he based that decision, which I thought was foolish, uh, on the grounds that I drank too much. And that he wasn't the least bit sure that he wanted uh, the mother of his kids to be drunk every night. I thought that was rather prudish of him, and I also was quite sure that his mother was at the base of it all, and that uh, she had talked it out of, you know, talked him out of it. So we had a terrible fight about his mother. He insisted that I shouldn't criticize her, and even went on to say, "And I insist upon it." And I had him, of course. Okay, when that particular fight lost the man. Anyway. Here I now was with a college degree and a broken heart. And you know what any alcoholic with a broken heart will do, you know, if it's a sensible alcoholic, so I did. And stayed drunk a lot of the time, then decided that my problem was not just Peter, who really wasn't worth it anyhow. What uh, my problem was, was Boulder, Colorado, which was just kind of a hick town and had very little to offer a European sophisticate like me. So the following year, I lived in Los Angeles, San Francisco, briefly in Portland, Seattle, touched base up here a few times and tried to patch it up with Pete. That didn't work. Left here, St. Louis, and ended up in Storrs, Connecticut, teaching bonehead English to the engineering students at um, U of Connecticut. That worked for a while. I met some people who were doing uh, research for the Navy, and they had access to almost unlimited supplies of pure laboratory alcohol. So every night, one of my housemates would come back with a little Erlenmeyer flask of alcohol, and we'd mix it up with grapefruit juice or orange juice or whatever we had, and have a party. And I saw nothing the least bit unusual about this. It was all, you know, GI Bill and people who weren't particularly wealthy. And besides, you know, if it seemed to me half the graduate school was over there drinking with us, and I didn't feel conspicuous, so, you know, raw alcohol was handy and it was cheap. Drank it. Somewhere along the line in the Connecticut year, though, I got a letter from my father who said that uh, he really thought that I was turning into a bit of an academic tramp, that he had bought, essentially bought me a bachelor's degree, and he pretty much had. I'd partly worked my way through one year when he and I had had a fight, but most of the time he certainly had paid all the bills. He was quite prepared to buy me a college degree, and if I was really serious about the master's that I said I was getting, that was fun, but what he was prepared to do was to support me for one more year, fully, anywhere I wanted to be, uh, studying anything I might like to study. But he strongly suggested that it be something useful, because at the end of that year, he wasn't going to give me another nickel until the day he died. And my father's a man of his word, and he thought that self-reliance was good for young people. So here came this ultimatum. Well, I didn't like it. So I had a caucus of my friends, and we all got rather drunk, and decided that uh, really the thing for me to do was to go over the options. We did. Teaching was out because, you know, 
that was teaching certificate and all those noisy kids and secretarial work, of course, would be dull. And, you know, we just sort of ticked over a variety of things. Finally, somebody said, well, you've been saying you wanted to live in New York. You like books. You like people. You're interested in publishing and in writing and language and stuff like that. Why don't you go to New York and go to library school? You know, there's a big demand for librarians. So I sat down that night and wrote a letter to Columbia on how I have always wanted to be a librarian, and in due course they accepted me. So off to New York, uh, went looking for Columbia. I'd had a few drinks. I located City College, and then when I located the other one on Washington Square, I assumed that that was Columbia and rented an apartment on McDougal Street and didn't find out till I was sober the next day that that was, in fact, NYU. And I was going to be commuting up and down the west side instead of walking to school. But that was fine. Being in the village seemed like sort of a neat idea when I discovered that that's where McDougal Street was, and I found some uh, old friends from Colorado who were trying to make it in the theater business and who lived in the neighborhood, and we had the party organized again within a matter of two or three weeks. Now, during most of this period, the New York Library School period, I was drinking just about every night. Most of the time it was okay. Uh, I could, and I think most alcoholics are in control of most of their drinking most of the time. I think that's how, how come it's so deceptive. If every time we drank there was a disaster, I think even we would learn. But the fact that we can drink maybe three or four nights without anything awful happening and then have something awful happen on the fifth or sixth night, we can always point at that one as the exception. You know, and say, well, it was the antihistamines, or I, I was taking, or I was tired, or I mixed my drinks, or it was Tuesday, or some good logical explanation for why that was the exceptional night and the real me was the one who drank in a more orderly kind of way. And most of the time it was fairly orderly. But that was most of the time. And like a lot of people, and particularly women, I discovered that if I went out and drank in bars, uh, very often things happened. Uh, when you start having blackouts and you're not quite sure who you're going to go home with or who you're going to bring home with you, and these turn out to be people that you haven't met and would never, you know, in sober judgment, choose, uh, that can get a little scary, particularly in a city like New York. So the only reasonable thing to do is to become a home drinker as opposed to a bar drinker. So I did that. And, of course, that limited my options a bit. Uh, as my drinking got more unpredictable and Little Miss Friendly Drunk became Little Miss Hostile Drunk and started saying cutting things to people and getting nasty and belligerent, uh, I didn't know when I was going to do that, and I didn't know how I was going to behave at your party, and I might not be able to remember exactly how I did behave, if I was lucky, and if I was not so lucky, maybe I could remember, and that again meant to me, drink with fewer people, or drink only with the people who drink the same way you do, LeClaire, so there won't be any hassle and there won't be any criticism. But this was strictly evening stuff. 
and very little spillover uh, into anything I wanted to do during the day. I was a pretty good student. I was used to it. I'd been working as a student, if you will, for years. Was quite good at last the last-minute tour de force to study something or do the last-minute term paper. And I think the only reason I actually failed a course at uh, the library school business was uh, that it was 9 o'clock in the morning. And I simply didn't go, and I had paid very little attention to the fact that if you cut class a certain number of times, they uh, failed you, regardless of what you did with your paperwork. So for the first time in my life, I failed a course and decided that I'd fix them. Uh, I'd take the course the following summer, and I'd get an A-plus in it, you know, and show them. Well, okay, father's money ran out. Uh, I had to work while taking that course. So I went to work in the stacks of the Columbia Library, Butler, from 9 to 1 in the morning and 1 to 5 in the end, uh, sorry, 5 to 9 in the evening, and took my class in the afternoon and did my studying in the afternoon. I don't know if any of you have ever been down in the stacks of a big library, but it's drunk's paradise. You know, you sit down there near sort of the you know, delivery end of a pneumatic tube system and get sent slips that represent books that people upstairs want. Okay? So if you sent a slip down saying that you wanted a copy of whatever it was, if I felt like it and it was convenient, I'd send you the book. You know, there was kind of a dumb waiter system that would take it up. If it was not convenient and I didn't feel like it, I would wait a discreet period of time and check on it, book not in, or book at bindery, or whatever it was, and send the slip back. So I was sitting there doing my drinking on my three floors of the stacks, and there was a, a guy who was, you know, three down from me, you know, and he was doing his drinking. We all just simply hid our bottles behind the books. Mine was in Bantu mythology and Bantu. Okay, and since black studies weren't stylish yet, nobody ever went into those books. For all I know, there's still a jug there, you know. But anyhow, I was doing all that. Now, during that year, I met my first AA member. Uh, he was a late vocation Catholic priest by the name of Ralph. And I was terribly impressed with him. He told me a story that would make your hair stand on end of chain gangs in Georgia, uh, sleeping in doorways on the Bowery, doorways on Bleecker Street, um, many hospitalizations at Bellevue. Just terrible story. He was an older guy, which means that, you know, there I was, 24, and he was all of 45, which made him, you know, practically an ancient monument, and he sounded like just what I thought an alcoholic was, an older man who'd been in an awful lot of trouble, you know, with all the signs of social deterioration. So when he asked me if I'd like to, to go with him to an AA meeting, I was delighted. Uh, I was a little worried about my drinking, and I went and heard... Uh, three speakers, all of whom were men, all of whom were in their mid-40s or older, all of whom had essentially Bowery stories. Now, some people say, if you're ready, any AA meeting is a good meeting. Uh, I'm not so convinced. 
I've often wondered what would have happened if one of those speakers had been a young woman. But you see, I had a tremendous list of things that began with I only and I never. I only drink good stuff. I only drink after 5 o'clock. I never drink in the morning. I've never been jailed. I've never lost a family. I've never lost a job. I've never been in the hospital. I've never had DTs. I've never had a convulsion. I only, I only, I only, I never, I never, I never. I don't know if I was consciously looking for ways out as opposed to uh, points of identification, but there was very, very little to identify with. Not only that, but all three of these guys had found the faith again. Uh-oh. All right, I had left the Catholic Church with a great deal of anger in uh, my early teens, and the last thing I wanted was anybody who was going to try to force me back to Mother Church. And if these guys liked that sort of thing, that was really neat for them. I was delighted that they had this uh, miraculous organization to belong to. That was exactly what I thought alcoholics were like in the first place. And the only reason I got drunk that night after the meeting was because I'd had so much coffee with those people that I was nervous and, you know, had to have a few drinks to get to sleep so that I could go to work promptly the next morning and not feel bad. And you'll have to admit that's perfectly logical. So that's what I did. It was a full year before I went to my second meeting, uh, not as a tourist, but for myself. And by that time, quite a few things had changed. Uh, my list of I only's and my and I never's had gotten much, much shorter. I'd gotten out of the library um, that I, you know, where I'd been working. They didn't want to rehire me after that marvelous summer when I was doing the split shift. I don't know quite why, but the New York Public Library did. And they had some unreasonable expectations. They weren't used to students. They wanted... They weren't the least bit interested in somebody who thought uh, she was a genius who would be there now and then. What they wanted was somebody who was much more mediocre, who would be reliably there from 9 to 5, if that was what the schedule said. I had a little trouble with that. So I found myself on probation uh, on the job. I had been drinking to get in touch with people and to deal with my shyness. And what I found now was that I was tremendously isolated. I didn't dare drink and be out with people. I didn't much dare to be with people if I wasn't drinking. The result was that my social circle now was limited to two or three people that uh, drank the way I did, and we would drink together in my apartment most of the time when we drank, and I was usually buying the booze. Uh, these were friends, by the way, that vanished almost to a, a person uh, in the first three weeks of my sobriety. Uh, they had very little interest in me sober. And I, I'm not really surprised. Incidentally, of my drinking friends, by the time I'd been in AA for five years, all of them were either dead, institutionalized, or had disappeared. You know, or were in AA themselves. Uh, in a sense, I was the, you know, one of the milder drinkers of the group. And it was just a question of, you know, waiting it out for the others. Pretty serious disease we have, and it goes pretty fast once it, you know, it really gets going. But anyhow, that was happening. I was blacking out a lot of the time. I made three suicide attempts during that uh, period between the two uh, AA meetings, my first and my second. 
One I don't remember at all well, though I think it was probably the most serious. Um, I took slow-acting barbs on a Friday night and didn't wake up, or rather fast-acting ones, and didn't wake up until I was, you know, quite confused on a Monday morning when I had a pretty good um, case of pneumonia. And, you know, there it was. My hunch is that probably the respiration had been pretty slow during that period. Um, also, I had, a, you know, the beginning of some nice bed sores on my butt, so... You know, I think probably I'd done a rather good job of it. I don't even remember taking the pills, so I can't tell you much about it. My other overdose that I remember much better uh, was a less serious one. You know, just didn't have enough stuff. The one I worked on the hardest probably just would have made you giggle if you'd observed it. I decided to make it look like an accident so my parents wouldn't feel bad, and I was going to drown myself in the bathtub. And the way I was going to do this was to make it look like I had slipped on the soap and hit my head on the tub, you know, here, and then slid under the water and drowned. So I filled up the tub, and I sort of skated the soap around on the bottom a bit and tried to work up courage enough to throw my feet out from under me and, you know, do this head blow thing. I danced for a while, and that wasn't working too well. So finally I bent my knees way down, you know, so I wouldn't fall all that far and had a go at it. And that hurt. And all it really did was to raise sort of a lump on the back of my head. But I was far from out, so I thought what I'd do was just simply go under the water and take a deep breath and drown, because I'd read an account from somebody who'd uh, been drowning who talked about how they finally gave up and inhaled the water and their life passed before their eyes and it was all very peaceful. So I thought, fine. This was all way before medical school. I knew nothing about gag reflexes and things of that sort. So I went under and, you know, sort of set my teeth and took a deep breath. Uh, try it sometime. You, <laughs> what you do is, is you shoot straight up in the air like a cork, you know, coughing, you know, vigorously, which you can't stop. You know, so I coughed and I coughed and I vomited. Now, you clearly can't drown yourself in a tub full of vomit. It just is no good. By that time, I'd been working at this kind of hard, and I needed a drink. So, nothing for it but to, you know, clean up a bit, get out and get drunk. So I did. I was pretty serious about that one, though. And it's taught me a bit about suicide, because I don't laugh at other people's attempts much anymore. I don't care how ridiculous they seem. We have a colleague, by the way, who's a member of this group, who had quite a go of killing herself by um, getting into a plastic bag to try to suffocate. Okay? And worked at it for the better part of two hours. I don't know how she had the guts. But anyway... That was the year of the suicide attempts, the growing isolation, and the conviction that I was insane. Uh, clearly, people who cannot go out with other people and who are that frightened and who are killing themselves all the time, you know, and having to drink the way I was having to drink, must be crazy. Uh, there just was no other explanation for it as I saw it. And... I kind of thought that people were lucky that I was holding together as well as I was. In fact, I'm sure most of you know how much actual physical courage it takes to go to work in the morning sometimes the way we feel in the morning. You know, when there you are on the subway wondering if you're going to make it to the next stop or you're going to have to get off and vomit, you know, between stops 
you know, are you going to be able to hold your hand still if somebody stares at you? And I don't think it matters whether you're trying to write a prescription or to stamp out a library book. It's the same thing. You know, the eyes fix and the shakes start, and there you are. But anyhow, I thought I was nuts. And when things got really, you know, sort of super bad, and I embarrassed myself in the same way as I always had, but just once too often, and acknowledged that I'd have to do something about it. You know, the drinking pattern would have to change somehow. I looked at my options and thought that I couldn't go to a psychiatrist because he'd see how crazy I was, or she would, and would lock me up. I couldn't go to a regular doctor because if I did that, that one would call the psychiatrist, you know, and there I'd be. I thought maybe of AA, but AA was all those holy roars. It was all those nutty people. Now, I had made a, a statement to some AA friends whom I'd met that I might go someday if they would find me a sponsor who was my age, who was smarter than me, and who was Jewish. <laughs> Because I had it all figured out that there was no other alcoholic my age. Clearly, there was nobody in the universe smarter than me. And I had read somewhere that uh, Jews didn't get alcoholism. So this was a dandy way of saying, yes, I'll go, but I won't go. And, of course, it had taken the New York AA community less than 48 hours to locate somebody who fit this description. And I had the name and the number. But anyhow, doctors were out. I didn't want to talk to my parents because I simply didn't want them messing in my life. And they didn't know about my drinking. I didn't want them ever to find out. But I decided that I would do the thing that I had always been able to do, and which, in fact, I had done only a few months before, and that was stop drinking on my own. Uh, I'd always kind of felt that if I ever really wanted to hard enough, I could. It was just that I hadn't wanted to stop that much. Or I kept... I'd always kind of felt that if I ever really wanted to hard enough, I could. It was just that I hadn't wanted to stop that much. Or I kept postponing it. But this time I was pretty serious. Do-it-myself seemed like the only solution. I'd only been drinking in the evenings. It had been less than six months, you know, that I had stopped for close to a month on my own. And there'd been no... Um, consequences to that at all. I'd handled it very nicely. It never crossed my mind that I couldn't stop drinking just as abruptly uh, all by myself. And by the way, I was off pills at this time. I'd been on and off a few times, but they made me oversleep the alarm clock and I decided they were bad for me and went back to alcohol usually. But anyhow, there I was, convinced that I could, could do it myself, so I did. And was smart enough to tell my boss that I had a bit of flu and might not be in for a day or two because I thought I'd get a little shaky. What I didn't anticipate was that on the second evening, um, the shadows would start getting three-dimensional, and that as the car headlights would swirl them around the room, very often after the car left, they'd keep walking. And although I don't remember it very well, uh, evidently I was crouched in a corner with a butcher knife, um, fighting off people who weren't there and trying to defend myself and making rather a lot of noise about it, because the building superintendent, Bobby, um, broke into the, my apartment. I do remember this piece of it much more clearly. Uh, he came in, turned on the lights, you know, started talking to me as I was sitting there with my knife. 
and asked me if I'd been drinking, and I remember telling him rather indignantly that no, I had not. Whatever else I had been doing, I had not been drinking. In fact, I'd put all the effort I had into not drinking. And Bob said, well, in that case, I think maybe you better. And poured me half a glass of whiskey and stood over me while I drank it. And just simply talked me down. You know, kept telling me who I was and where I was and, you know, basically treating the withdrawal. And after a while, I don't know how long, he asked me if I was okay and I assured him that I was. And uh, in due course, he left. Incidentally, he had been number one in his class at Harvard Law School. Uh, he, too, was an alcoholic, and he went on to die of our disease a couple of years later. He was helpful to me, and he understood me, but he never could make it into our program for whatever reason. But anyhow, after Bobby left, there I was. And I discovered now, you see, that I was I shouldn't probably drink but I couldn't not drink. You know, I was really hooked. If I if I tried to, to stop, you know, clearly this was withdrawal, and uh, I was going to get in trouble. Now, the hospital situation at that time, and this was 1953 in New York, was Towns Hospital on the west side, an old brownstone-type building on Central Park West where Bill had his hot flash experience. You needed money to get into Towns. There was High Watch Farm, up in Kent, Connecticut, that dried people out, but I hadn't heard of that. I didn't hear about that for a number of months, and it wasn't very well known, you know, except in, in and around AA circles anyway. And then there was Bellevue. Uh, Anne described Bellevue a bit last night. Uh, it is not the kind of place where I think most people, if they're a little bit nervous, want to go. So, given those alternatives, I thought that holy rollers are not, uh, reformed drunks are not, maybe AA would be an okay alternative. And I did have the phone number of my Jewish alcoholic, Lyle. So sure enough, around 4 o'clock in the morning on Friday the 13th of March, and I still remember the Friday 13th part of it, looking at the calendar and thinking, wouldn't you know? Uh, I called up Lyle and said, okay, you win. Uh, I had, was convinced for some reason that this woman had been spending every waking hour and sleeping hour, too, I guess, you know, anticipating my arrival or anticipating my call. Of course, she had the remotest idea who I was or what she'd want or anything else, but I explained that I was now willing to go to AA, and she said, okay. Uh, that being the case, she'd come over and get me that night. And I said, oh, no. Uh, a matter of fact, that was Friday night, and I had a party on for Saturday, but... Um, you know, I'd go with her Sunday. And fortunately, Lila was a pretty traditional sponsor, and she said she really couldn't give a damn what I was going to do next Sunday or two weeks from Sunday or three months from Sunday. If I'd like to do something about my drinking this 24 hours, she was interested. Otherwise, she wasn't. And since she put it that way, I decided I would be interested that 24 hours, too. And, you know, over she came. Thank God she did, because I, I might have gotten some sort of self-confidence back in another 24 hours and, you know, gone right back out there again. I don't know. But anyhow, she took me to my first meeting that night, which I don't remember. And I guess it's pretty good instructions around AA when everything else fails, follow directions. And I was just defeated enough and just scared enough that what she told me to do, I did. 
and if that meant go to a lot of meetings, I went. She had to tell me which meeting and with which person. In fact, she practically had to tell me when to blow my nose. But that was a time when people stayed with you a lot in AA if you were withdrawing. I had quite a lot of babysitting those first three or four days, uh, very little just being left alone in the apartment. People couldn't hospitalize me, but um, they did kind of understand about 12-stepping, and they were there, and they kept the, the sensory input there. They didn't let me isolate and start hallucinating again. And I did get a couple shots from a housebound nurse that used to inject Lord knows what into various AA members when the doctors wouldn't pay any attention to us. So I was taken to Maggie's and bent over the bathtub and injected with something, God knows what. Anyhow, the DTs did not come back. My own feeling is that it wasn't the medication from Maggie, that it was the people and the, you know, the reassurance and the talking, you know, that kept the withdrawal from getting bad again. The next thing I knew, I was going to AA pretty regularly, taking it like medicine, and then later I was beginning to enjoy it. And then it got to be fun, and then I noticed the people were laughing, and it began to seem so funny that here I was with a disease that seemed to be treated by laughter, and that it was absolutely bristling with contradictions. Anne was talking about alcoholics being able to encompass a whole bunch of contradiction when we're drinking. Yeah, and the program is full of contradictions, and I love it. There are no musts, but there's so many you damn, damn well better orders. Uh, it is not a moral problem. It's a disease. And we all know that, except there's a problem. Alcoholics are not psychopaths, mostly. Some of us are, of course, but... You know, the vast majority aren't. So when we get guilty, we get uncomfortable. When we get uncomfortable, we get thirsty. When we get thirsty, we get drunk. Therefore, in order to stay comfortable, we have to be slightly more moral than other people and do silly things like taking moral inventories, you know, and looking to that part of ourselves, you know, whether we like it or not, except that it's a disease and not a moral problem. <laughs> okay. Lots of neat things uh, in and around AA, and after a while, you know, I really loved it. And incidentally, I have been one of the lucky ones who has not had to go back to drinking uh, since I joined, which makes me an old-timer, and which does make it 30 years uh, as of 1983. I can't say the same thing about uh, drugs, because in my first few years in AA, they didn't tell us very much about uh, pills. I think people are much luckier now with uh, a lot of the young folks coming in who've had a whole bunch of pill experience who are willing to share it. Uh, at the time, we didn't hear about that very much. And the result was that although I knew that maybe sedatives weren't such a bright idea, nobody said much of anything about amphetamines. And since we were all drinking coffee and stimulants seemed like a pretty okay thing to do, I thought amphetamines would be too. And that was kind of another story. But... The drinking part of it was okay. Uh, I discovered, after I'd been sober a while, though, that I was probably a little bit crazier than most of the group. Um, some of the stuff that I was looking at, you know, during that very heavy drinking period, before I finally got sober, 
uh, was quite real and was not going away simply because uh, I had not put the cork in the bottle. Therefore, I was one of the people who did have to go to a psychiatrist, not to have a training analysis at all, out of my own very real need, you know, for therapy. And I remained in treatment off and on for the better part of uh, some ten years. I'm convinced, by the way, that uh, I never did find out why I drank. I don't think it's important. I think I would have been an alcoholic even without assorted emotional problems. And I'm quite convinced that I could never have taken advantage of the psychiatric treatment I had if I'd been attempting to drink and drug at the time that uh, I was in treatment. It just wouldn't have been possible. But letting AA take care of my drinking problem and my alcoholism, I could then go to a trained person for my people problems and take, you know, take my time selecting somebody, meet appointments, pay the bills, you know, do all of those nice things. And along the way, it turned out that back for discussion came my original plan before I'd gotten engaged to Peter of um, doing pre-med and going to medical school. I felt that by now that it was impossible. I was nearly 30. Um, I was an alcoholic. Uh, I'd never done the pre-med. I wasn't at all sure but what I was slightly brain damaged. I certainly didn't seem to think as well as I had before, and I kind of blamed it on that bad overdose. And I think there may be some truth to that, but, you know, it wasn't just aging that I knocked out a few cells that I couldn't spare. But anyway, with encouragement from my shrink, I did start applying to med school. And it was rather an interesting experience. I applied to a great big bunch of them and simply split them into two piles, true and false, and decided if I could tell the truth about myself and still get into a med school, I'd do that. But if I had to lie about it, uh, I'd do that too. And let's just see how it came. If I could go to a truth school, I would. Uh, all right. In due course, I did get accepted by one of the truth schools. It was through a Dr. Coy at Western Reserve, you know, who heard me out and then said that, um, well, a lot of his admissions committee would not understand, and he wasn't really planning to discuss it with them. Um, he would send me a letter of acceptance when he got back to Ohio. That automatically converted all of the others to truth schools, and I had the joys of going back to two or three of them who had not known that I was alcoholic and who had accepted me, you know, and putting them on the spot of having to deal with that one piece of information and then either make a change in their decision or not, that's a whole nother tale, but uh, it was kind of fun, particularly at NYU, where after subjecting me to a complete battery of psychometrics, uh, they said that they were going to accept me anyhow, and I said, how come? Because they told me an awful lot of the negatives that they had found in the test results. And they said, oh, but you're not psychotic, which I guess is the criteria for admission to NYU. I don't know. But anyway. Make a long story short, I did get into uh, a medical school that I wanted to go to, and that was Columbia. Thought that they were very enlightened. Uh, I had told them all about. I'd been, you know, had a drinking problem, and I had gone to a psychiatrist. Went to the reception for the um, freshman class, and was immediately offered a um, martini by the dean. 
I asked him if he was on the admissions committee, and he said indeed he was. And I said, well, you may re recall that one of the new students was a recovered alcoholic. And he said, uh, yes. I said, well, that's me. Uh, he said, yes, I know all about that. Do have a martini. <laughs> and it came out and washed very fast that they thought the psychiatrist had cured me. Okay, and that I was now back to social drinking, and that was the level of their enlightenment. I wish I could tell you that I had changed that all around. But that was only, you know, about 1959, and we have gone from seven minutes for all Columbia students to two hours and a half on alcoholism. Uh, I think it's two and a half. Um, three? Maybe three. But that's, that's about where we are after uh, a good 15 years of trying, and that even includes having a uh, career teacher for three years. Okay. But anyway, got through Columbia. I had planned initially, or I thought initially, of working with alcoholics, decided that probably would not be a particularly good idea. I thought I'd be too evangelical, that I was too close to the whole thing, that it wouldn't be terribly good for them or, or terribly good for me, and that the better part of valor would probably be to let somebody else take care of the drunks. So what I did was simply go to Roosevelt Hospital to do internal medicine and try to be a good internist. The only problem was nobody was doing anything for the drunks. It was all very well to let somebody else do it, but it wasn't happening. And I watched the same thing you've all watched over and over again of people coming in with all kinds of uh, complications of alcoholism and toxic effects of alcohol on the body and the alcoholism itself being totally ignored and people being scolded and told not to drink like that and uh, discharged out on the streets again. So after a while, I decided that maybe something was better than nothing, and over-identified was just a, a gamble that would have to be taken, and asked my boss if um, I could have an alcoholism service at the Roosevelt Hospital, if I could find a way to fund it, and he said, yeah, if um, he wasn't fascinated with alcoholism, he was fascinated with endocrinology, but that if I would become interested in endocrinology for two years and work in his lab, then he would become fascinated with alcoholism two years later. So I boiled urine for two years and shook hands a lot. And of course, um, you know, I did start that and ended up working in the alcoholism field one way or another from about 1968 up until um, 1982. Very good, uh, very fun experience. Um, awful lot of politics, awful lot of power struggles, tremendous number of mistakes. Uh, lots of people like uh, like you to kind of hold my hand and help along the way. And one thing I particularly like to mention is that early on in the medical school piece of this, somehow I started picking up though there weren't any real lectures on alcoholism except for that one little six-minute business in sight, that there was something kind of wrong with AA and people who might go to AA. That real scientists like us at Columbia would never find that kind of folk medicine, you know, really acceptable. 
and that if, if somebody kind of had to go over there to get their recovery and to understand themselves and to manage their lives, uh, that was really, you know, kind of big blessing. Okay. Somehow I got wind of the fact that there was a group called International Doctors in AA that was going to be meeting in Toronto. I think it was about 1960 or 61. I got there. It was a small group, I guess probably, you know, including wives and guests. Maybe there were somewhere between 40 and 60 people at the most, and I think that's being generous. But I met people like Don McCoy and Jim West and Luke Reed and John Mooney. Uh, there weren't any other women, but there were some pretty impressive people there. And some of them had some uh, pretty good academic credentials. And they could certainly hold their own very neatly with the kind of people who were my instructors, uh, you know, back in New York. And somehow just seeing them there and knowing not just that they were alcoholics, they didn't quite need that piece so much. But the thing I really needed was that people who were intellectually okay and intellectually sophisticated were finding AA entirely acceptable for them. And that made AA acceptable for me in a very different way. It kind of charged my batteries, legitimized the whole thing, and let me go back to New York and stand a little bit taller, you know, around that medical school, and I think go right on feeling the rightness of my own insistence for myself that I go to meetings when I was uptight and having trouble with courses rather than studying just that much harder. And these are the kind of choices you have to make in that situation. You know, and it's such a pull. Am I going to do well on the exam and get my good grade, or am I going to cut out of here? You know, and go sit with a bunch of drunks and drink bad coffee in a church basement. You know, it's kind of hard for a medical student to know that that church basement is the place to be. Uh, for the likes of us, it is. You can always take the course again. I don't think we can take our lives again if, you know, we get back in the jug. But anyhow, IDAA was very important to me then, and it is now. Uh, just that it's very important that it stay intact and that it remain an AA group and stay with AA traditions, uh, not get diverted into a thousand other things that are the rightful business of uh, other organizations like AMSA and NCA and whatnot. Okay. I worked trading drugs for quite a while. I had some problems with it. I think we all do, you know, the problems of what do you do when your patients become your peers, you know, and end up in your AA meeting all the time, and then they end up leading the meeting, and then pretty soon they're the, you know, they're the chairman of the group, and they're weller than you are, and yet you know you're not supposed to be running around with your own patients because that gets a little thorny, and you do have people trying to set you up as the, the expert physician in the group, and because we're human, we love that, so we strut. And then we wonder how come we're feeling alienated and isolated. I used to have an awful time with myself when I would complain bitterly that everybody treated me like a doctor and I couldn't tell them and, you know, couldn't hide from, from what I did for a living, you know, in New York. And people would 
come after me as a professional in the field and all that stuff. And then I'd turn right around and go to somebody else's town where they didn't know me from Adams or Fox. And I couldn't stand there not knowing I was a doctor so that I'd leak it myself. And then have to find out, um, you know, then have to complain because now they were treating me not like just one of them. I was just not, but, okay. I had a good time with it. Uh, in due course, as I left New York, went up to Rhode Island, and went to work for a for-profit uh, treatment facility. I discovered very fast that my not-for-profit mentality and their orientation didn't quite mix. I thought that I could get my own way, you know, by managing my politics brilliantly. I did not manage my politics, you know, brilliantly, and I got fired. And my first impulse, having been fired, was to pretend that I hadn't been and pretend that I'd resigned, and then I knew that I couldn't tell you people that sort of nonsense or I'd get isolated again. You know, that's the trouble with lying. It's not that it's morally bad. It just puts us right back in the darn glass box. You know, that's uncomfortable. So, okay, I had to level about that. And then I had people wanting to rescue me and urging me to do the thing that was the first impulse thing to do. Go out and get a bigger and more impressive job and show them, you know, with a bigger salary and something more important, you know, and prove to everybody I didn't need that old job. Well, you know something? They didn't want to go out and get a bigger and more impressive job. Took me a long time to realize that. What I really wanted to do was to sit down and have a go at writing a couple of books. Because that's what I had kind of wanted to do back in the library days anyhow. You know, in the early days in New York, when I was thinking that, you know, while drinking, that I was the new female Thomas Wolfe. And here I'd been making all this noise about someday I'd like to write a couple of books. And lo and behold, here the whole thing was on a silver platter. I didn't owe anybody anything. Uh, I was fired. I was free as air. Uh, if I really wanted to write silly books, I could do it. Now, I don't know where I am today if I'm going to find out that I'm good at writing books or not. Maybe I am. It may be a total bust. Uh, maybe this is a way to get what I know about alcoholism and you know, the other interests I have together with the early interest in writing, you know, and sort of do a synthesis with it. Maybe it's not. But one of the joys of this uh, AA thing is that I think we learn that we're not perfect. We don't have to be. We do not have to succeed at everything. We don't have to, you know, overachieve or, or any of this nonsense unless we choose to. And... I think what you've given me a bit is permission to try something, and if I succeed at it, neat, and if I fail, that's going to be perfectly okay, and I'm going to try to stay sober either way. In the meantime, I'm having all the fun of doing something quite new and quite different uh, and that I've never tried before. So I think that pretty much says it for me now. Uh, I have a permanent commitment to this group that I made in 1960. That whatever else I did, uh, you know, as long as IDAA kept meeting the first weekend in August every year, I would be there. Uh, so far I've kept that commitment. I plan to go on doing it. So I'll see you next year. 
and we'll find out now, you know, then whether I'm a writer or whether I'm back to doing good, honest things like pumping chests and feeling livers and, you know, trying to take care of drunks a different way. Thank you very much.